Take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. You know, we live in a day and age where so many people seem to be confused on what is the gospel. And uh, the book of Galatians really hammers this thought out. Uh, let me read something. Leon Morris, if you're looking for a good commentary on the book of Galatians, this is one of the better ones. Leon Morris was a very respected scholar out of uh, Melbourne, uh, Australia. Uh, World-renowned New Testament scholar, highly respected. He says something that we need to remember as we read uh, Paul's letters. Uh, he says, it's a great pity that Paul's letters were ever called epistles. They are in the most literal sense, letters. In this way, William Barclay brings out the fact that what Paul wrote was a series of genuine letters addressing specific situations in which he and his converts found themselves. He was not setting himself about to produce great literary works like a Shakespeare. That wasn't his purpose in writing. He was addressing local congregations dealing with specific issues. And we need to keep that in mind as we read Paul's letters. But, he says, as Barclay further reminds us, a thing need not be a transient thing because it was written to meet an immediate situation. All the great love songs of the world were written for one person, but all the world loves them. So with Paul's letters. The apostle did not write to meet the needs of the church through the ages, but what he has written speaks to the churches through the ages, to us as well as to those in previous days. Galatians takes us to the very heart of the Christian faith. So even though it was, they are temporary letter, I mean, letters written to churches at that time, because they're inspired, God has used them down through the ages for all churches. But again, we need to understand that they were written to address issues at that time. Now let's pick up in chapter 1. And I want to talk tonight about the subject matter, keeping the wheels from coming off. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Brother Jim, would you open our time in prayer, please, sir? Father God, we just come to you this Wednesday evening just uh, gathering together to learn more from your word, to study it, to let it wash over us and really, really affect us. Father, we just uh, lift our prayer list to you the first time tonight anyway, and Father, we just pray that your grace and your will would bring you glory and honor in each and every case that's represented on that list. And Father, we just uh, look forward to a great time in your word. Fill Pastor Scott with the words to really make an impact with Galatians for us tonight. And we'll ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now, the epistle to the Galatians has been called the Charter of Christian Liberty. The Charter of Christian Liberty. Uh, it's Paul's manifesto of justification by faith and the liberty that it produces. Now Paul addresses this great charter of Christian freedom to a people who were apparently willing to give up this priceless liberty that they possessed in Christ. And they were ready to go back under the bondage of the law. And so Paul writes this letter to refute a gospel of works because a gospel of works is what? It is no gospel at all. Paul is amazed that a group of professing believers would be so easily swayed to go back to good works and the law 
as a means of justification, something the law was never intended to do in the first place. Folks, believers in the Old Testament were not saved by keeping the law. It's always been by a matter of faith. What does Paul say in Romans about Abraham? That 400 years before the law was even given, as Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and God credited it unto him as righteousness. They didn't even have the law yet. And so in the Old Testament, people were justified by faith. They knew that through the sacrifice, God was atoning for their sin. They were looking forward to that perfect sacrifice that would be made one day in the Messiah. But the law was never given in order to save people. Scott? It's interesting this past Sunday in Steve's class that uh, uh, he said, you realize, or should put it this way, that uh, whom, to whom was the law given? And you think about it, well, it was, you know, Abraham was, you know, first contact with God and everything else. Right. And he said, guess what? He was not a Jew. He was, <laughs> and I had never thought of that in my entire life. Ever really thought of that? Sure. Yeah. Isn't it interesting though? But uh, yeah, so he the, was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Yeah. But as Paul will point out, the law was given as a tutor, a schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ. And the law is also described in the scripture as being what, what I would compare to a mirror. You get up in the morning and you look at your bedhead from sleeping all night. And you know what you got to do to fix it. You ladies look at your face and you know where to put on the makeup and all that, right? Does the mirror in and of itself comb and fix your bedhead? No. Does the mirror put on your makeup? No. What does the mirror do? The mirror exposes what you what what has to be done. Right? The law exposes our sin and our need of a savior. And it drives us to the foot of the cross. That's the purpose. And so again, Paul's amazed that a group of professing believers are leaving behind the liberty they have in Christ to go back under the bondage of the law, thinking the law can do something for them that it was never intended to do. Now, there's such an urgency in this letter. Paul, Paul either did not use an amanuensis. What's that? What's an amanuensis? A secretary. Paul either didn't use one or he took the pen away from him sooner than he did in other letters. Because he wanted them to know that this letter was from him. And, and he didn't like one bit what the Judaizers were trying to, to teach the church. Now, who were the Judaizers? They were a group of people who came in on the heels of the apostles to various churches 
And they were constantly preaching a Jesus plus the law salvation. They were kind of like, you know, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's, that's well and good. But you need to become essentially a Jew first and be circumcised and observe all the Jewish rites and rituals and holy days and things of that nature and then add Jesus to that. That's what they were, that's what they were teaching. And, and so, again, this is one of the strongest letters anywhere to be found combating a, a Jesus plus anything else salvation. Now, there's a debate about whom this letter was written to and, and uh, when. This is an introductory lesson tonight, so let me cover just a few matters that ultimately won't impact it too much, but I think it'll set the context. There's the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. Several hundred years before the birth of Christ, some fierce tribes migrated from Gaul. That would be modern France. They migrated into Asia Minor. They founded Galatia, which simply means the country of the Gauls. This would have been the northern area of Asia Minor. Now, the North Galatian theory points out that Paul might have visited this area on his way to Troas on his second missionary journey, and actually he wrote the letter while on his third missionary journey. But there's no evidence that Paul ever visited areas to the north, which was Galatia proper. When the Romans took over that area, they included the cities to the south in Asia Minor into the Galatian province. Well, we know from Paul's first missionary journey that he went through those southern cities. And then he revisited them to check on the status of the churches. Now, according to this theory, the South Galatian theory, the book of Galatians is very early. <clears throat> that along with the book of James, it would be the earliest letter in our New Testament, probably written somewhere between 48 and 50 A.D. Now, I think that's the better theory, the South Galatian theory, because it would put the letter before Acts 15. Now, what's important about that? The Jerusalem Council. And what were they deciding at the Jerusalem Council? What to do with Gentiles. What to do with Gentiles. What do we require of them? What, what, what do they need to do to be saved and to be right with God? And what did they conclude? But essentially they decided not to add anything to Jesus, right? long and short of it, not to add anything to Jesus. Now, the point of the South Galatian theory is this. Had the Jerusalem Council already happened, the book of Galatians would be an excellent time for Paul to utilize that council and the conclusions that they had come to at that council. 
He could have basically opened the letter and said, I refer you to the conclusions at the Jerusalem Council. End of letter. He doesn't mention that council. Indicating that it probably hadn't taken place yet. I know that's an argument from silence, but it's a powerful argument. Now, at any rate, what I want you to see is that the book of Galatians carries with it one of the most relevant messages for today. What constitutes the gospel? How is a person saved? How are we made right with God? And do we need to add anything to what He has done for us in Christ? Now folks, those are the most important questions we can deal with. Because if it's true that we're sinners... And without Christ, we're estranged from God. Then the number one question that ought to be in our minds is what? How can I be made right with God? How can I be reconciled to a holy God? How can I be at peace with God? That ought to be the most important thing. There's nothing more critical to life and eternity than that. And so that means that the book of Galatians, along with Romans... Ephesians and the book of Hebrews these are some of the most doctrinally significant books in our New Testament. Galatians has got to talk about things foundational to our Christian life. And then hang on because like in most of Paul's letters after he the first half or first portion of his books generally addresses what? Doctrinal issues. Then at some point in Paul's letters, he will turn and start essentially addressing the question, so what? What does all this mean for the everyday Christian life? And Paul will get there in Galatians also. After the doctrinal section first, the, the application. So Galatians is a, a book about redemption. It's a book about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And about being very careful that we don't add anything to Him, to Christ and what He did on Calvary's cross for us in our study. Okay, from the first five verses, verses one to five, I want you to write down a God-called man with a Christ-centered message. A God-called man with a Christ-centered message. Paul wants to establish right off his authority as an apostle. Now, Christ had many disciples, even during his three-year public ministry. He had many disciples. You know, in Luke, we read about him sending the 70 out. So he had the 12 and then a lot more than that. He only had 12 that are referred to as apostles. And remember in Acts chapter 1, they replaced Judas with who? Matthias. And you remember what, you remember what the qualification was? That an apostle had to be someone who had been witnesses of Jesus from the start, 
which Paul, as a rabbi, even though he wasn't a believer at that time, he was around, and, and it had to be somebody who had witnessed the crucifixion and knew about the, knew about the resurrection or witnessed the resurrection. And so to be qualified as an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord. Now, Paul talks about how because, because of how, how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he was an apostle born out of due time and appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he made no bones about it. He was an apostle. Now, based on the biblical definition of an apostle, are there apostles today? No. no. I know going to the beach this summer, as I've told you before in the past, especially if you go through some of these little towns, get off the beaten paths and go through these little, some of these little country towns on your way to the beach, it's not unusual at all to go past a church sign and it'll have on it, Pastor is Apostle so-and-so, so-and-so. Well, I'm here to tell you, according to the New Testament definition of apostles, there are none today. Now, there may be those who go in an apostolic spirit, taking the gospel even to unknown places, but there are no apostles. But Paul was an apostle. And so he is trying to establish for them who he is. And what he means by that, he's not just some self-appointed, renegade preacher who's operating out of his own authority with his own message. He's an apostle of the Lord, chosen, called by the Lord, even set apart by the Lord before he was even born. He wants to establish his authority so that from there he can get them to see that his message, likewise, is not some renegade message. And his message is no different from the message the other apostles were preaching about Jesus. So it's not that Paul is inflated with pride here in these verses, trying to make a name for himself, it's the gospel that's at stake. He wants them to see for the sake of the gospel that he's the real deal. God called him to this position and God gave him his message to preach. He didn't get this message from man's creative writing abilities. As John R. W. Stott says, he defended his apostolic authority in order to defend his message. Now from there, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are phrases and words that are pregnant with meaning. The nature of salvation is peace. Peace with God. Because sin has put us at odds with God. Yeah. Outside of Christ, we're enemies of God. We're in rebellion to God. 
Each one of us. I don't care how good you might have been in the eyes of other men and women before you were saved. Each one of us essentially has a clenched fist in the face of Almighty God. We were rebels. But salvation brings peace and reconciliation with God. And the source of salvation is grace, God's free favor, irrespective of human merit. And this grace and peace flow from the Father and the Son together, as he points out here. The Father offers it, the Son procured it, and the Spirit draws us to it. How did the Son procure it? He gave himself for our sins. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, the just died for the unjust. He's the propitiation for our sins. As Paul says in Romans 3.25, the death of Jesus was primarily not simply a display of love. Was it a display of love? Yeah. Yeah, it was that. But it wasn't just, it wasn't limited to that. It wasn't just a good example of heroism. What was it? It was a fulfillment of Scripture. Yeah. And Jesus was very aware that that was priority one. Absolutely. It was an exchange. It was an exchange. A sacrifice for sin. He died in our stead. The Greek word, who care, he died for us in my stead, in your stead. Took all the wrath of God against sin that I deserve, that you deserve. He bore it. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that you might be clothed in his righteousness. He took your sin and gave you in exchange his righteousness. Martin Luther commented that those words are like very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. He says, once we have seen that Christ gave himself for our sins, we realize that we are sinners unable to save ourselves and we give up trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. Now, what does salvation bring us? It brings us forgiveness from our sins. But there's more. As Paul says here, he's delivered us from what? From the present evil age. Exactly. John R. W. Stott says, Christianity is a rescue religion. I like that. Delivered us from the present evil age. This age and the age to come are like two parallel lines running together. We're part of this age now. But as Christians, we are to live according to the age to come. In this world, but not of this world. Now, the forgiveness Christ offers sets us free from the penalty of our sins. But it also sets us free from the meaninglessness of this age. And all of this, he says, is according to God's will. In other words, I don't want to throw you for a loop here, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean. 
New Testament theology is not Marcion theology. What in the world do I mean by that? One of the first big challenges to the early church, one of the main heretics was a man by the name of Marcion. Marcion rejected the God of the Old Testament. Said he was mean and vindictive. And he rejected any part of the New Testament that made reference to the Old Testament or quoted the Old Testament. And so, whereas your Bible might be yay thick, Marcion's Bible was like yay thick. But what's the problem with that? By, by pitting the Father and the Son against one another. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that He came. What's Jesus say in John 1.18? That He came to exegete the Father for us. There's no conflict between the Father and the Son. As Paul's saying here, what God has done in Christ... God and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are working in perfect concert together to bring about our redemption. And this means who gets the glory? God does. Through all of eternity, the glory will go to God and God alone. Nobody will ever be running through heaven bragging about what they did to get there. Now, you see, the theology of the Judaizers would result naturally in what? A shared glory, if it were true. Because essentially it would be like, God does His best, and you do your best, and you put the two together, and that would equal salvation. And you can both get some credit from it. You and God. A shared glory. You do your part. Circumcision, the law, all the Jewish rites and rituals, trusting in Christ, put them together. A shared glory. That would be the natural result if the Judaizers' theology was correct. But again, it was heresy. The glory belongs to God and God alone. Okay, secondly, I want you to see a surprising departure beginning there in verse 10. I mean, excuse me, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. One of the strongest words in the Greek language of condemnation. Let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Literally. As I've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally damned. So what's Paul commenting here on? A very surprising departure they, they've made. Now, normally at this point in Paul's letters, 
what does he spend a bit of time at the front end of the letter doing? Offering greetings and why he's thankful for them and he's offering a prayer for them and all that kind of nicety stuff before he gets into the body of the letter. But in the book of Galatians, he skips all that and he gets right to his point and he, rip, he rips them a new one. He says, I am astonished. It's bold language. Be like you and I saying, I'm dumbfounded. I'm blown away. I can't believe what you've done. There's passion and emotion in these words here. He says that you're so quickly deserting him. Now, the, tense, the tenses here mean that the departure is not complete. They are in process and so, in other words, Paul is trying to stop them before it's too late. Now, the word deserting was sometimes used of a soldier that would desert to the other side. You can use the word traitor or turncoat. Now, notice also that in deserting the gospel, they are deserting the God who called them. Folks, you don't reject the gospel without rejecting God. They might think they're just going over to a slightly different version of the gospel, but as Paul points out here, there's not a version, another version of the gospel. And so this is not a situation where believers are just deciding to go different ways on preferences that don't mean that much. Paul is pointing out that they... They are taking the route of a wholesale departure from the gospel. And why is this happening? Because of false teachers. They're being troubled by this group that's come into their assembly. This group that thinks they're enlightening them and instructing them. No, they're leading them astray. And they need to understand what's at stake here. The very saving message of the gospel is at stake. Uh, uh, a relationship with God Himself is what's being threatened. And so folks, we need to understand the seriousness of matters like this. The seriousness of things like cults and wrong theology. If we preach a theology of works or if we let some cult twist our thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done, we need to understand what's at stake. Our very souls are at stake. Well, Scott, can we not just say what is the common thread through all of this? The false teachers and everything else. Satan's busting himself sure. wide open trying to kill the church. At birth. Yeah. And, and most of the early church councils and creeds, what, what they were doing is offering orthodox statements about the person and work of Christ. Because that was at the heart of what the early false teachers were attacking. And so the, for the first 400 years of the early church, church leaders were hammering out Christology. Orthodox Christology. The person and work of Christ. And you know, in the church, we can disagree about a lot of non-essentials, right? 
I mean, if we were to talk about eschatology and different different opinions people have, I know in pits there are about six or seven different views on eschatology in time religions. Pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-rat, trib, post-trib, historical premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. I mean, all kinds of yeah, yeah. The whole game. So we disagree about those things. People disagree about different types of church government. You know, there's debates about. The Gospels, the order of the Gospels. If you if you listen to scholars, you know market priority based on literary features. Uh, in, in church tradition, you know Matthew placed first because the natural bridge that Matthew's Gospel is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew is a very natural bridge. Although I think Mark's Gospel was first. I do, and I think Matthew and Luke. Uh, and you know, saying is Matthew and Luke use Mark plus at least one other source. I think there's legitimacy to that. But anyway, we disagree about all these matters, is what I'm saying. But it, when it comes to the person and work of Christ, we must not disagree. That's what I've told my brothers. I've got brothers that King James has it. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> And I have told them that what's important is Jesus was born a virgin. He died. Absolutely. He lives again. And he intercedes for us. Absolutely. I don't even want to discuss with some of these other things. Yep. But you know what I was thinking? Don't you think the devil's getting into even Baptist churches? We see people that were strong Baptists who've gotten into all these different great big you know honoring what you can get from being a Christian instead of what's important mm. and they just uh, Joel Steen and, and even some of these what do you call them Evelation what is it the, the churches that we got around here oh, Elevation. Oh, okay. Elevation. Elevation Church I couldn't think of that word that happens when you get old <laughs> but you know they water down so much and I think the devil really wants to get into the church sure. doesn't this beg us to add, ask the question though, about these people that are looking at departing uh, where their faith is because I mean if they're leaving were they actually saved to begin with if they're willing to put their trust I think the answer is no. Yeah. No, they weren't saved to begin with, that they're now willing to depart away from Christ. Not their babes in Christ. Yeah. Uh, perhaps. Sure. Yeah, some people can genuinely, let be saved and be led astray. Yeah. But some people by departure would, would show that they were never converted to begin with. Now, those matters are hard for you to know, you know, you and me. God knows. But like the disciples said to Jesus about the wheat and the tares, you want us to separate out the tares? He said, no, because in trying to do so, you'll pull up some of the wheat. The angels will take care of that in the judgment at the end of the ages. The separation will be made. 
but he, it seems like he, this argument goes well with Hebrews as well. Oh, sure. Sure. So again, some things we can disagree about, and that's okay, some non-essentials. But what Paul's talking about here is a matter we must not disagree over. This is essential. We must get it right. Uh, the Galatians are being led to believe that having begun with Christ, they need Moses now to finish out their justification. He's going to make that point in chapter 3. Now, in strongest language possible, as, as I mentioned to you, Paul says, if anybody comes to you like that, preaching a gospel of human merits or adding something to Jesus that's no gospel at all, let him be eternally damned. Anathema. What did Jesus say about leading people astray? Do you, do you remember what he said about this? A millstone. Yeah. Have, you, have you ever seen a millstone? The, the millstone? Anybody in here been to Israel and seen like some of the ancient millstones that they use? It's, it's not a little thing. It, it, two circular stones, probably hundreds of pounds a piece, one laying on top of another, and the bottom stone have some ridges cut in the top of it. The top stone would have some ridges cut in the bottom. The hole down through the middle where they, you know, use things to turn it. And a mule or whatever, or an ox, turning, turning the millstone. Pouring the grain down through the middle and letting it come out the crevices when it's the chaff and all is ground off of it and, and the grain pours out. But point being, those millstones, hundreds of pounds each, I dare say. Uh, Jesus said it'd be better uh, if you were inclined to be a false teacher and lead somebody astray, it'd be better to have one of those millstones as a necklace around your neck and then take you out on the Sea of Galilee and dump you overboard than to lead people astray. Well, Scott, repeatedly in Scripture, another view of, of Christ regarding uh, false teachers and so forth, he considered them stumbling blocks. And that was one of the key words where he really was hot about, let's sure. put it that way. Sure. And it was because he would lead innocent people astray. Sure. And I cannot think... You know, one thing that I always, even as a Sunday school teacher, I want to rightly divide the Word of God. Woe to me I, if I ever messed up and did not do a lesson right because I either misunderstood, misinterpreted, whatever it is. You know, I don't even want to go there at all knowing how God feels about that. Sure. Even Jesus' words to the Pharisees, what they had done with the Old Testament faith, with Judaism, how they had misrepresented that. Jesus said, you travel lands and seas to gain one disciple, and when you gain one disciple, you make him twice the son of Satan that you are. 
That's pretty strong words. Well, the third thing I want you to see tonight, a convinced convert and a changed life. He says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I get uh, go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That would be uh, Peter, Simon Peter. Remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Paul himself had been a legalist at one point. You remember that resume he gave of himself in Philippians chapter 3, where he said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel? of the tribe of Benjamin, prominent tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What did he go on to say though? What is done? What was gained to me, I, I now count as done for the, for the sake of knowing Christ. Isn't it interesting how God works? Oh yeah. I mean, wouldn't he obviously be a great preacher to the Jews with all his knowledge and everything else? Yeah. But he said, no, you're going to the Gentiles. Going to the Gentiles, yeah. <laughs> and of course, Acts 9 records the conversion experience of, of Paul. And then he, as he points out here, he went into Arabia for three years. But the point is that Paul's conversion... And the gospel of Christ that was revealed to Paul was entirely of God. Paul was not wooed by man. He was not brainwashed. He was born again. He was quickened. He was converted. And he says even when he went back up to Jerusalem to stay for 15 days with Peter, he didn't get his his gospel from man again he got it from God and it was the very same message God had given to the other apostles to preach man had not shaped things in Paul's mind it was God's doing and everybody could see that, that Paul was a changed man and the early Christians 
glorified God because of this. Because here was a man who was once trying to put him in prison. And now he's defending and preaching the very gospel that they've been preaching and Paul was previously arresting them for. And so once again, he's trying to establish his authority and his experience. He's not simply trying to get them to just simply prefer him over the Judaizers. He wants them to see that he's a man whom God has changed and converted and God has entrusted the saving message of Christ with. And, and here again, not talking about preferences, talking about the work of God. Paul's exhibit A, exhibit A of what he's talking to the Galatians about, not being under the bondage of the law, and what the Judaizers are doing, on the other hand, is they're preaching a gospel that is false. It's not even a gospel. And Paul, Paul could say, hey, I was, I was under the law. I was under the law with no reference to Christ. I hated Christ. I was under that bondage. And here they are trying to preach Christ plus the law. Trying to mix the two. And as he'll say later on, you try to mix the two, what do you end up destroying? Grace. But again, what he's saying here, what he's pointing out, he was exhibit A of the bondage and the lostness under the law. And God saved him out of that. He's not wanting them to go back to what God saved him out of. Well, let me give you a couple of lessons in closing. Lesson number one, look for God-called men who stay true to the gospel. Judge a Bible teacher or preacher by his faithfulness to Scripture, not by the power of his personality or the persuasiveness of his words. Is he true to the gospel? You know, it's like what Paul would say to the Corinthians. You know, or what the Corinthians, I should say, were saying of Paul. Boy, his letters, he's strong. But he comes to us in person and he's just this little weak fella, unimpressive. That the Corinthians were trying to judge by things that don't matter. You judge Bible preachers and teachers by do they stay true to the gospel? That's what matters. The second lesson there's only one way of salvation, and his name is Jesus. We live in a day of tolerance where men said, you know what, I, I have my way, you have your way. You know, just live and let live. <clears throat> Folks, don't be deceived by all that tolerance nonsense. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You say, Scott, are you saying that millions and millions in the world without Jesus Christ are you, are you saying they're lost? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into this tolerance that any way is okay. 
A third lesson, understand that the law and human works cannot save. Nothing else can be or needs to be added to Jesus. Jesus doesn't need help saving you. Again, as Paul's going to point out, human works added to the gospel nullifies the gospel. And then the last lesson. Know that there are false teachers out there who preach a gospel that is no gospel. We're not, we're not talking about something here that's locked away in the first century and we've never had to deal with since. There are still false teachers out there who are preaching a gospel that is no gospel at all. Remember, we live... Come in. We live in a world where Satan is at work and he has his messengers out there doing his bidding. Okay, anything else in closing that you want to add? That's how Paul, that's what Paul said in 2 Timothy. He warned Timothy that there's going to be false teachers out there. Absolutely. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, that was his last book, wasn't it? Yes. That was his closing word to us. Oh, yeah. There's false teachers, Timothy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Preach the word. Be instant in season and out. When it's convenient and when it's not, reprove, rebuke, instruct. And the day will come when men will have itching ears <laughs> accumulating for themselves teachers who will tell them what they desire. Yeah. But he said, Timothy, you remain true to the gospel and fulfill your ministry. I was thinking about that. The man that you said, you said nothing about the Old Testament. Uh-huh. And that was a mean God. Right. And you know, when I read the Old Testament, I see a forgiving God. Absolutely. A loving God. Absolutely. Long-suffering. Yeah. Long-suffering. See yep. how many times he forgave Always. his people. Absolutely. And I don't understand why people would just see him as a mean God. He gave the Canaanites 400 years to get their act together. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes he's still giving us years to get their act together. Might not be 400, but he's giving us problems. And if God even saves one, that's grace, because who deserves to be saved? Zero. Zero. Yeah. And grace was so important to Paul that in every, well, I'm not going to say every, in 13, of his epistles mm -hmm. all say grace and peace. Yep. And people skip over it when they're reading like, oh, that's just a how are you, you know, grace yeah. to you, shalom, and all that stuff. Yeah. But that was so important to Paul. Absolutely. To 13 of his letters. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, those common heresies that attack Christ's person and his work, those are two of the three main roadblocks that Muslims have to coming yeah. to know the truth because they've been lied to their whole lives about the person and the work of Christ in yeah. addition to the trust, you know, the um, confidence we could have that the Bible is God's word. Yeah. That's the third one. And where Paul says here, even if 
even if I or an angel from God came and preached to you a different gospel that is no gospel, let it be anathema. What group in America, I mean, there, there are other places too, what group in America says an angel came and gave their leader new revelations? The Mormons. Yep. Now watch Paul say again. Let them be what? Anathema. Let them be eternally damned. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, let me give you just a snippet of a of a lyric of a Keith Getty uh, song that really gave me goosebumps when I saw it on the video, and that was this. There are millions of souls passing away in the night. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, wow. <laughs> I don't know, I had goosebumps anyway. You think of the enormity. Sure. And then on top of that, we've got all the uh, stuff that is having us add to our load in getting the gospel out to people. You know, yeah. the opposition of Satan and things like that. And it just always has bugged me. Why are the people that are most actively against God doing the most as far as physically being out there? Who do you see every Saturday morning just about? And then, like I said, you see the guys in the little thin black shirt, uh, ties and white shirts on bikes going by. They're zealous. They're yeah. zealous. You gotta give them credit for that. They're zealous. But yes. they're zealous because works are such a part of their theology. Yeah, yeah, it is. Where does baptismal regeneration come into play when you're evaluating this? Because there are entire denominations oh, sure. that believe in this. Roman Catholic Roman Catholicism and the Church of Christ both would hold to baptismal regeneration. And if you don't know what that means, it means you you got to be baptized in order, in order to be saved. That's why in the old Church of Christ churches, if you if it's a Sunday morning service and you came to Christ that morning in Sunday morning service, they baptize you right then and there. Don't even wait to come back tonight because between this morning service and the night service, you might get killed in a car wreck. So, I was told by one that even if you're baptized... You're not saved unless you yeah. believed when you were baptized. That was part yeah. of your salvation. But I mean, I, I understand what you're getting at now, because that baptismal regeneration, that that belief, is adding something to Christ. Mm -hmm. It'd be a modern day, essentially, like the modern day Judaizers in in its own little way. <clears throat> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There are people that rely on that. Exactly. Yeah. And Roman Catholicism, again, largest supposedly Christian group in the world, holds to baptismal regeneration. But they've added a whole lot of stuff. Oh, sure. But the Protestant churches came off of your Catholic church. That's why they call Protestant. Right. Protestant. Sure. Both ways. Sure. That was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Some groups carry that with them, that that segment, that belief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks.
folks, our time's up. Uh, Aaron, would you mind closing us in prayer? Okay. And then as, as you do so, keep in mind these up here too that we put down. Father, we thank you for your word of salvation to sinners. That whoever will may come and find full and free salvation. We thank you for the privilege of knowing that and being able to carry that into the darkness, into people who are confused. And Father, we know that you have placed us where we are to keep pointing people to the simple gospel of our crucified and risen Lord. And we thank you for the clear message that's proclaimed here in this church and people who clearly love your gospel. And we ask that we continue to pour out your spirit here on your people, those who are traveling May they return safely. Those who are going out on the field, those who want to go out on the field, as you've called them, we ask, Father, that you make a way, that you would send others, because there are so many still who have yet to be set free from trying to do something to appease whatever gods may be that they have heard about their whole life. We pray for those who are nearing the end of their journey. We thank you for the testimonies that we've heard. We ask for your comfort in those times, decisions that are hard to make. We pray for wisdom in those. pray for young people who are facing a very difficult day more than we had to face, more pressures, more temptations, and we ask for your mercy in, in those situations. Thank you, Father, that we are commanded to cast our cares on you as you care for us. So we praise you in Jesus' name.